Well, aloha from Maui, Hawaii. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner, and again, happy to be with you on this Sunday morning. Today is the 5th of September, the uh, middle day and a three-day holiday in the United States. Anyway, it's a holiday known as Labor Day, and we celebrate labor by giving labor a day off. So enjoy yourself. Uh, as um, the days of blue-collar jobs, so many have gone overseas and are never coming back. It's interesting to see some of the more conservative business leaders admitting now that, yeah, those jobs are not coming back. They went to the third world. They're not coming back uh, uh, any more than steel mill jobs are coming back. But um, it's good that the auto industry is back on its feet, got a little bailout and prepared to pay all that money back. They've already begun to pay that back. And whatever you happen to think about the state of the economy, things are changing in all areas of our lives, lots and lots of change. And most of us are left with merely our logic, our reasonability, our common sensibilities uh, to deal with the rapid change and the challenges, the problems, and, and the difficulties of, of moving into this 21st century. The truth is that we have a gut feeling, another kind of intelligence, and it's so poorly understood, though we all experience it from time to time, but still I'd argue that it's so poorly understood that most of us are not aware of any distinction between the two basic types of gut feeling. You got you've got two guts. <laughs> there's there's two areas where you can feel the so called gut feeling. And they're very different processes. They're very different kinds of intelligence. Um, so I'd like to talk a little about that today and give you some instruction on how to access both your instinct and your intuition, uh, to know the difference between the two, and how to uh, bring the third intelligence, the one you already know, which is logic and you know, what people mean when they say, be reasonable, right? Reasoning, what is reasoning? You see the gut feeling, whether intuition or instinct, is not really a reasoning process. It is non-logical. Now, that does not mean that it's illogical. It doesn't mean that the information you get intuitively or instinctively will conflict with logic. Actually, it may or it may not, but doesn't suggest that it must. What we mean by non-logical is it's just different. It's not other. It's not opposite. Illogical would be it, it's somehow a contradiction. So I like to say the gut instinct, intuition and instinct, it's not illogical, but it is non-logical. So these are three intelligences that we have available to us. And actually, I'd like to do them in a somewhat different order here to begin with. 
And that's to start really with instinct and suggest, as I just do a cursory overview here, that we start with instinct. And then we'll talk about logic, and then we'll go to intuition, because the hierarchy almost is that in, in some models, I guess you'd have to say that logic or your reasoning, rational thinking processes that you do consciously, that you've been trained to use in school, really falls in between instinct and intuition. So let me tell you what I mean by this. So we have a gut feeling below logic, <laughs> the instinct, and then a gut feeling uh, above logic that is really superior in many ways, and that would be intuition. Okay, uh, so let's just define terms a little bit, and then I want to talk about logic, and then we'll come back to contrasting it against these gut feelings. Uh, first, uh, instinct is really the most innate um, uh, of the three intelligences that we're talking about today. Instinct is innate. Uh, you're born with an instinct. Some people have said that um, in early childhood development that the only real fears that an infant has are loud noises um, and uh, fear of falling, a fear of heights. And that's pretty much it. And the rest of the fear that we deal with in our lives has to be learned and we do learn it. We learn to be afraid. We learn to be cautious. We even learn to be paranoid sometimes. And we also learn to project our feelings on other people. Few human beings in this year, 2010, in any culture around the world, are conscious of their emotional nature as coming from them rather than being done to them. Now, as students of personal and spiritual development, as um, therapists and facilitators, or people who've uh, been uh, clients or patients, or I almost said victims, uh, cl uh, clients of, of therapists, you're familiar with this concept. One of the very first things a person learns in counseling is to take ownership, responsibility, and accountability for your experience of life to drop the nonsense that there is something objective happening here that we can all agree on, and that in the midst of that, there's a right and a wrong. And of course, your reality is going to be right, and a different reality then is going to be wrong, right? if that's your worldview. But <clears throat> what we begin to learn when we first get counseling in our lives, mental health counseling or emotional counseling, couples counseling, family counseling, gosh, it might even be guidance counseling in career, academic counseling and such, that you're suddenly introduced or maybe gradually introduced. And when sometimes the sun comes up real slowly in the morning and this dawning begins to occur to you, oh my God, my whole emotional experience of being alive is mine. Uh, it may overlap with other people's experience emotionally, but uh, 
Who's to know? Right? And it's important when we when we say to somebody, How are you doing? How's it going? How you been feeling? That's what we mean. We're, we're, you ask somebody how they're doing, you're really not saying, what are you thinking about? Sometimes a person will say something like that. Penny for your thoughts. Gee, Bill, you look pensive. What's going on, dude? Okay. But usually it's how you're feeling. How's your health? How's your outlook? How's your your attitude? How's your experience of life? How is your experience of life? And as long as it's positive, um, we'll take responsibility for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing really well. I got a raise at work, and I lost five pounds, and, um, you know, we finally got that project done uh, out in the back 40, and uh, I'm doing really well. But if the experience is more negative, the affect or the, the feeling that's being expressed, the more negative it is, the more down in the dumps the more likely we are, we are to, to project our feelings onto other people. As if somebody made me feel this way, you made me angry, or you made me sad, or you made me embarrassed, or you made me defensive. Uh, I heard about a fight the other day where a guy says, well, you should have known I was going to hit you. You made me hit you. Right, you know I hit people when I lose my temper, and the, the guy had like no responsibility for his behavior at all. You made me slug you in the and he was, you know, he was perfectly uh, okay with that. It made sense to him that he was completely irresponsible. Um, men are often this way. Um, the more simple-minded when it comes to rape, for example, you know, you'll hear these talk show guys going on about how the woman was dressed provocatively and oh yeah she was gang raped by seven kids but gosh there was that um, there was that uh, low cut blouse after all and and uh, what was she doing on the streets at night and all of this uh, nonsense as if men have as if men have no control over their libido and no responsibility for for what they do well Responsibility for what we do, the society seems to understand. Responsibility for what we think, society seems to pretty much get. But for some reason, responsibility for how we feel, especially when those feelings are negative, generally speaking, society does not hold you accountable. There's not a whole lot of pressure from your friends to say, well, why do you feel that way? Well, I know, I know you told me that so-and-so said this to you or did this to you, but the feelings, though stimulated by somebody, right, uh, or some event or some circumstance, the the feelings are your response. They came out of you, and you had an ability to uh, choose that response, and isn't that responsibility? the ability to choose your response. And when we're emotionally worked up, suffering from negativity, often we don't make choices. We just react. And rejecting accountability and responsibility put all of our blame 
on the person that stimulated the feeling. So we're not real clear about emotional intelligence, both instinct and intuition. Instinct and intuition, I would argue, are forms of emotional intelligence. It's just one, one we've begun to talk about here. The instinct is innate. You're born with it. It's part of your survival. Okay? It's uh, somebody sneaks up on you and says, boo, and you jump. You might say, well, you frightened me. It's not that you frightened the person. You surprised the person. But the point is, fear is fear of the unknown. So your body is going to react as if it's in danger. And you may experience fear, even if technically surprise might be uh, a better word for it. There really was no danger. You just didn't know. Somebody said, boo, caught you off guard. What is that? That's instinct. It's uh, jump out of the way and then look at what you're jumping out of the way of. It's shoot first and ask questions later for many people, the Wild West in America. Um, it's uh, halt who goes there, friend or foe. No, I don't want to discuss politics. You've got five seconds to identify yourself, right? It's the either-or mentality of the fight-or-flight response. It's extremes. It's true or false, everything or nothing. You've heard me talk about this a lot. In fact, we'll talk about it more. Breaking people out of these false dichotomies is part of the critical thinking that we need to expose our friends and neighbors to. We're going to change the world. We have to change the way people think and the way they feel. Right? So that's what we're doing. That's what consciousness raising in part is all about. So instinct, I'm going to argue, is the first of the two kinds of gut feelings. It's um, innate. It's built in. You're born with it. It is part of a survival response designed to keep you alive. It's very, uh, again, black and white, very binary in nature. And uh, essentially, it's fear-driven. That's what you need to know about instinct. It's driven by fear. And remember, fear always represents something you don't know. Usually, at the heart and soul of our anxieties and fears is something we don't know about ourselves. And that's why it's so important to begin to take accountability and responsibility for your life. Because if you try to understand how you feel by studying other people, you're going to run into the same dead ends that you've been running into all of your life. Gosh, I have this very strong feeling, this, this fear-based anger, this fear-based hatred, this fear-based animosity, this fear-based defensiveness, and it all represents what I don't know. So I'm going to obsess on the person that made me feel that way, know the enemy. Well, it might make sense if you were in real danger, but you're not. Your stress and fear and anxiety, in the case we're talking about now, and more commonly so, 
is about what's unknown and confusing, not about anything dangerous, no real danger has presented itself. And so, in response to something we don't know and understand about a situation, to know the other, to know that which is not you, <laughs> sort of misses the point. It's your fear. It's your anxiety. It's your anger. It's your hatred. It's your animus. It's um, your angst. It's your confusion. It's my confusion and I'm confused and upset. And the only way out is to know the self and to be true to the self and accept responsibility and accountability for the emotional feeling being evoked from you rather than done to you. Life is a two-way street. But most people are so victimized, they only see the part that comes at us. We don't really see the flow of life that comes out of us. And so rather than dancing an elegant dance throughout life, and initiating projects and being who we can be and following our hearts. Most of life is avoiding what we don't want or the tragedy. Avoiding what you don't want and obsessing on understanding other people so that you can manipulate or at least influence other people. And again, as Tolstoy said famously, most people want to change the world by changing the world. <laughs> the idea of changing yourself and making that your most significant contribution to changing the world just does not occur to most people. Now, the Hindus have a nice allegory I often use about covering the world with leather. It's a beautiful 4,000-year-old allegory Again, <clears throat> to protect your feet, you could cover the world with leather, or you could wear shoes. I heard a guy the other day, police said, why are you running from us? He's running from the police. And uh, I heard this on TV, and they said to him, why are you running from us? He said, because you were chasing me. And it made perfect sense to him that if somebody was chasing him, he'd run. He didn't seem to understand that you know, the running was a response to being, uh, maybe the chasing was a response to the running. <laughs> there I did it. Well, we get our cause and effect uh, turned around. Sometimes we have a problem sorting out what's really going on in our lives, what's really the cause, what's really motivating us. He wasn't running from the police because they were chasing him. <laughs> it's pretty funny. He was running because he was afraid of something. It's a fear response. That's instinct, all right? And again, he didn't know. <laughs> he had some warrants, but he was largely confused. Uh, and that's what we do. We run away. But be clear, avoiding what you do not want is not a goal. How do you attain what it is that you don't want? How do you get to that place? Here, I've arrived finally at what I don't want, you see? There is no journey. There is no destination. Uh, there's no destination. There's no journey in moving away from what you do not want. And 
to look at the number of people who live their lives that way. A little stunning, actually, when you consider that you could be living a life of pursuing what you do want. And again, evolving in the process so that what you want becomes less and less selfish and more and more charitable and philanthropic because the rewards, of course, are greater. So I think logic, the abilities that we develop in school to reason rationally and to think deductively, really would have to come, in many ways, this mental ability in between the two types of gut feeling, instinct and intuition, or the two types of emotional intelligence, um, instinct and, and intuition. If instinct is merely our animal nature, fear-driven, survival-based, innate, you're born with it, logic can be developed. It's a process we're taught in school. Uh, virtually all reasoning in all subjects is logical in nature. And by that I mean deductive. There is such a thing as an inductive logic. Uh, again, rarely taught. Um, creativity is a term that is not very specific. Um, I think tends to refer to the intuitive process that we're about to talk about. Creativity and inductive logic tend to move from specific to general. There's your dictionary definition. From the bits and the pieces to some overarching umbrella concept, a gestalt, the whole enchilada that allows you to see the bigger picture and, and, and recognize information that is actually missing. You get to fill in the blanks, so to speak, when you get this overarching understanding. I'm just going to touch on it because, again, inductive logic is usually misused. It's uh, extrapolation of logic that in the real world tends to be based on anecdotal information, information that is not statistically significant. It's like maybe some bigot you know that says, uh, yeah, this ethnic group or this particular kind of person, yeah, they're, the bigot says they're um, weak, they're stupid, they're bad, they're drunks, they're, they're lazy, whatever stereotype, except a couple. I did know this one guy, and then there was really, come to think of it, there was this other guy, you know, they sort of backpedal on their bigotry with these anecdotal stories. And inductive logic is a way of extrapolating based on too little information, right? So that's about as much as I'm going to say about it. A good example is the, uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the uh, all crows is black, all crows are black uh, example. of every crow I've ever seen is black, then all crows must be black. The if-then statement that's inductive logic. But if your sample is too small, if you've only seen a dozen crows, that's pretty risky, you see, to even call that logic. 
But if you studied crows, seen hundreds, thousands of crows, studied the literature of other people, the books and and abstracts and monographs that other researchers have done on crows and the hundreds of thousands of studies uh, of all these crows put together. And everybody says, I'm sorry, every single crow is black. We can't find any variation, no albinos, uh, all crows. All right, well, the bigger the set you extrapolate from, the more likely this thing is to be true. That's the... That's where you have to be careful with so-called inductive logic. But in practice, when somebody says to you, be logical, be reasonable, think for yourself, be mathematical, what they're talking about is deductive logic. And to deduce is to subtract. It's to break things down from general to specific. There's your dictionary definition of logic. Deductive logic goes general to specific. It's like factoring in algebra, where you've got this long algebraic formula, and if you do the same operation to both sides, like here you've got this uh, plus x out here in the end, well, how do I get rid of that? I got one of those on the other side of the equal sign. Well, do the same operation to both sides of the equal sign, you can get rid of the x in both cases. Oh, cool, now it's a little shorter. And you keep factoring, doing the same operation to both sides of the equation until you deduce, subtract, break it down to your answer. Or an even simpler explanation or, or, or um, example of that is balancing your checkbook or ordering from a menu where you eliminate mentally what you do not want until you narrow the possibilities to two or three or four items, and then you choose from there. People think they order what they want off a menu. They they really spend most of their time eliminating what they don't want to arrive at what's left in their limited set. Uh, creativity or intuition or even instinct, I suppose, would be closing the menu taking a breath, rolling your eyes upward a little bit, and dreaming, gosh, if I could have anything I wanted to eat in this restaurant, what would it be? Without regard to what may be printed on the menu. You go to a fine restaurant, you can do this. You know, Tell them what kind of lettuce you want in the salad. And a better restaurant will, uh, you know, they got everything they need in the kitchen, a good deli like like Grandma's Kitchen, they'll whip it up for you. You don't even need a menu. A menu, think about it, a menu, a set of limited possibilities that you approach by a process of elimination and eventually choose what you want. All of that is logic. That's deductive. That's the way we're taught to understand everything. You know, love me or leave me. This is part of this binary uh, false dichotomies and extremist absolutist thinking. That's what it really is. People always want absolutes. They're terrified of variations and combinations. They're, whoa, too scary to have too many choices. Too many choices. 
and uh, the scene in Amadeus, the film about Mozart, where somebody makes a comment about why this music is not as appealing as it could be, and they just say, too many notes. <laughs> it's just got too many notes. That was all the logic he needed. Too many notes. Pull some of those notes out of there. And then we have the, back to the emotional intelligence, we have the highest function of the three, the higher gut instinct, which is intuition. And intuition is a realization. Um, I think one of my favorite definitions was told to me by an author named Joseph Chilton Pierce, who I interviewed in the early or mid 1980s at ABC Radio in Los Angeles. He wrote a book called, well, come to think of it, it was the late 70s, because I had just started there. And he wrote a book called The Crack in the Cosmic Egg. You ever heard of that book? There's actually a couple of them. I think he did a second book called The Son of the Crack in the Cosmic Egg or something. You can skip that book. But Crack in the Cosmic Egg by Joseph Chilton Pierce was a seminal book for me. And it's about his experience dealing with his wife's death from cancer. And the way the medical establishment had treated his wife, the disease process, the family, um, in general, and um, what Pierce saw as the rigidity and narrowness of the scientific mind and the scientific method. And he began to study, um, most fascinated actually, he was most fascinated by firewalking. He began the study of all things firewalking uh, throughout Indonesia and Ceylon and and he discovered there was really something going on here. This is not illusion or hypnosis or some sort of trickery, but some altering of reality, some suggestion that, as uh, Rupert Sheldrake said about the same time, that uh, perception is reality, that uh, there are these morphogenic fields, these, today we call them memes, Sometimes these patterns of thought that are established and sometimes manipulated. You saw Bush and Cheney do this deliberately with a, a department of disinformation that works even today to try to convince people that Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9-11. You just say that again and again and again. Or that Barack Obama is a Kenyan. He's a Muslim. You say that again and again. And how is it? that uh, people can begin to believe that kind of lie just because it's repeated often enough. What is this? Actually, as a little aside, this is a good time for me to point out that in our premium audio program that's coming out next week, the Finding Yourself in Paradise series that I do with my business partner of 35 years, Steve Snyder, our topic next week is neurolinguistic programming (NLP), which is a very advanced and sophisticated form of mind control, and it comes from hypnosis and visualization, and is intended to empower an individual, not to be used on our 
on others to manipulate them, to influence with integrity, but basically to grow yourself. Um, some people have taken this to the dark side. And they've gone to um, the media and, and the government with these mind control techniques. And often they're as simple as repeating again and again something that is patently untrue. But you don't have to prove that it's true to confuse people. All you have to do is confuse people. And, um, you know, you can't hardly turn on the news, pick up a newspaper, read a news magazine, uh, discuss current events without encountering some discussion about the low level of information that the average American has. Low information voters are often called. Bill Maher just calls them stupid people. Um, the band Green Day calls them idiots, idiot America, an idiot nation. And... Uh, you can understand why 30 years ago conservatives in this country started to dismantle education to really dumb down society. And it, it, it's not that we're lacking access to information. What we're lacking are thinking skills. This is the irony. We have access to the information, but we're like the sorcerer's apprentice. We don't know what to do with it. We could get the wizard's hat and the magic book and wave the wizard's wand. But we don't know what we're doing. We, By and large, humanity hasn't learned critical thinking skills. Not interested. As if it's a lot of work to think. Or thinking is boring. Or, or it's hard. Or <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I think what's most scary to people actually is change, whether it's growth or or falling back. I think just or or moving laterally. I think any change scares people. People just don't like change. Humans are resistant to change, and, and learning is a form of change. Getting better, even if you knew you're getting better, it's it's still a form of change that confuses and tends to frighten people. So we've got instinct, we've got logic, and now the second gut feeling, uh, intuition, which is a non-logical, again, like instinct, not illogical, but a non-logical approach to realization that is very much like instinct. That's why they're both called gut feelings, but the difference is intuition is love-based. It's about what you can do, what you can be, and what you can have. And if there is a single fundamental difference between these two gut feelings, instinct and intuition, it is the emotional polarity. That instinct is danger, Will Robinson. Danger, danger, run away, run away. Avoid what you don't want. Right? Avoid pain and suffering. Go anywhere. Just run away from what scares you. That's instinct. Right? Intuition is come hither. Go do it. You can have it. You can be it. Believe in yourself. You know, 
fate and providence will favor you. There's a cosmic wind at your back. The universe conspires to support the dreamer. And those kinds of concepts are intuitive. Now you might say, well, my intuition is more in my head than in my gut. Well, all right. I'd suggest you consider yoga as uh, a good way to think of this. What we know of yoga and uh, the brilliant system of chakras that we learn from the different yoga systems in the East. Hold on a moment here. There are seven chakras. The middle is the heart. That's the fourth chakra. There's three above and three below. So the fact that the word heart means middle is of some significance. The word soul means middle or center. And uh, the heart is in the center of the chakras. But the center of gravity in your body your center of gravity is somewhat lower. Again, the center of the chakras would be the heart because you have throat, ajna, and crown above and you have root, sacral, and solar below. Sacral plexus and solar plexus below the heart. But the center of gravity of your physical body is in the solar plexus, in the third chakra, rather behind the navel somewhat. So we could talk about the two centers, the heart center and the solar plexus just below it, heart center, fourth chakra, solar plexus, third chakra. And then below that, there's a sacral center in your abdomen, often correlated with... uh, the sacral center is a sex, money, uh, power, force, violence, domination. Uh, this is where most most human beings live, and by and large, in the, the second chakra, the sacral center. And then, of course, there's something even lower than that, the so-called root, the chakra at the base of the tail, the base of the spine or the tail, the root chakra, that's most basic of all, and that's survival. That's air, food, water, uh, and tends toward uh, violence. You know, the great example of of the animal evolving from the root chakra number one to the sacral number two um, is the ape with the, the bone at the beginning of the film 2001 or the book 2001. I never did read the book. I presume it's in the book as well. Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 where the the monkey learns to use a tool. And there's this prolonged uh, slow motion uh, scene where the thigh bone that this ape finds, this chimpanzee or ape, He brings it down like a hammer again and again and again, smashing. Well, that's a stage of evolution. That's a quantum leap. 
from just basic survival to sacral, where you, you not only want to survive, you want power over others. And in modern society, that's usually sex and money. It's 90% of what married people argue about. Sex and money or some kind of power struggle. Okay. It's ironic since in marriage, the whole idea is to give up the power of the self to create a power of the union so that two people together are stronger and better than these two separated individuals. But even in marriage, sometimes people want their individual power. They don't want to move up toward the heart center. So I'm going to argue for the sake of today's lessons, there's no definitive proof here, and different models could obviously vary. I'm going to argue that instinct, the innate fear-based gut feeling, is second chakra, sacral plexus, um, just above the root chakra, the second chakra, and pretty much survival and power-oriented. That's pretty much the extent of fear-based uh, instinct. Intuition, I'm going to suggest, is more third chakra. It's emotionally based. The solar plexus, the center of gravity in your body, behind the navel, so to speak. And in that area, aspiring toward the heart, because it is love-based, is our intuition. So, Instinct, intuition, instinct is fear-based. It's more survival-oriented. It's first and second chakra. But intuition is third chakra, solar plexus. It's about the emotional nature. It's about the self. It's love-based, so it aspires toward the fourth chakra, the heart center, which, by the way, does not open the fourth chakra, the heart center, does not open until humanity is your family. Until you understand that you're part of the one life. Actually, it goes beyond merely humanity being part of a single family, but all life being part of a single family. And you working for that one life. When and, and and know, of course, that you're included in the greater good. <laughs> Not a sacrifice to switch from caring about yourself to being more selfless. Being selfless, you're still included in the greater good of all concerns. So all you get is more rewards and more rewards, and that's why the evolution is is in in the direction it is from basic survival root chakra, through money, sex, and power, the sacral, the second chakra, into our emotional nature where we begin to care and care about who and care about what. We begin to feel love in the belly, aspiring toward the heart itself. And when that love goes beyond self in your immediate circle of family and friends, and you begin to feel compassion and love and rapport 
and sensitivity with all life. And you see beauty and love everywhere, shimmering and shining all around you. And that's much more important than your so-called separated self. Then we're talking about the heart chakra opening, and 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 this is um, the Buddha nature. This is enlightenment. This is the Christ or the Christos. This is beginning to be aware of yourself as a soul incarnate. And the soul, you see, is never alone. The soul always works in groups at the very least and shares, as Plato said, shares the ground of God. The soul is not separated from God. Shares the ground. It's the same thing. But it has its own point of view. And we, as an incarnation of that overshadowing soul, as an extension, tend to identify that the form, with the form we've been extended into. And it's very lonely in this separated body, in a world where everything is separated by its form nature from everything else. And that's where our most basic fears come from. And that's why they're found at the the bottom of this hierarchy, the bottom of the chakra system. It's really quite an elegant system. So I'd argue that instinct is second chakra, fear-based. Intuition is third chakra, solar plexus, love-based, tending toward, aspiring toward the heart itself, which is perfect love, the Christos, the enlightenment of the Buddha nature. Okay, now, some people will, will tell you that they experience intuition in their heads, and that's fine. I would not argue that. A different model, different systems, that's great. We're talking about some rather complex topics, and if your model for that is a little different, like I can often, I can relate to intuition occurring in my head as a dawning a light that comes on inside my skull and allows me to see what's been there all along as if there are little eyeballs not just on the front of my head that look out into the world but almost as if I have eyeballs on the inside of my brain that allow me to to see the the darkness and also experience the coming of the dawn and it might come slowly or the light bulb might pop on all at once um, but that's the, oh, that aha, that, that eureka illumination. You see, the coming of the light that mystics and even religious people talk about. George Fox, the founder of the American Friends, would talk about this inner light. And love and light is often thrown around by Christians as if love is the feeling of spirit moving and light is the vision of this or the mental nature you'd say it that way love and light love being the warmth or the emotional nature of love and the light being the mental nature uh that doesn't come logically it comes intuitively and it's a much higher frequency or level of understanding because it's love-based as opposed to instinct, which is fear-based. That's the argument. Okay. So, two kinds of intelligence. Mental, which is logic, mostly deductive. 
and emotional. Two kinds of intelligence, IQ, EQ. Within EQ and emotional intelligence, or the gut instinct, two distinct polarities, a lower fear-based instinct about survival and avoiding danger. It's innate. You were born with it. Animals have it. And then the higher, much more refined, intuitive nature, sometimes even called the sixth sense, sometimes even referred to as an extra sense, as in ESP, and telepathy and clairvoyance or remote viewing, they call it, or precognition, and all of the paranormal tends to to fall into, uh, how can I say this? There seems to always be some sort of altered state of awareness around the paranormal phenomena uh, that is akin to and related to the dawning of the light, the, the aha experience we just described as intuition in a much higher frequency um, more finely tuned intelligence, conceptual in nature, love-based, again in the solar plexus, as opposed to the instinct, which is always fear-based. So, obviously, here you are, you're listening to this program, you're a very intelligent person mentally. So now we want to develop our EQ, our emotional intelligence, And today we've taken a step along that path by dividing emotional intelligence or so-called gut instinct into these two polarities, the the negative survival-based instinct, the herd mentality, animals have it, okay? We've seen whole herds of, of mammals or flocks of birds or schools of fish that all move in one direction simultaneously the same at the same time as if by some kind of group mind that's also one of the advantages of of instinct that herd mentality that group mind right you just do it i just did it and um you know, too much of that is not very good. Uh, but in certain situations, that's what keeps us alive, is that herd mentality. That's just another way of talking about the instinct. And then the intuition, I think, is even more refined than logic in many ways. And as logic comes to tell you about the world around you, and instinct as well tends to tell you about the world around you, that form of emotional intelligence called intuition gives you a personal insight into yourself and then the world around you. You know, people say, judge not. Well, why should I not judge? How can I stop judging people? Understand that the reason you're judging people is to figure out yourself. And it's indirect and incomplete and ineffective. Better to know thyself Gee, that sounds familiar. Know thyself, (laughs) as wise women and men have been saying from the beginning of time. And you can empathize then with other people. You don't need to judge them. 
if you know yourself first, instead of why did they make me feel that way, why do you feel that way? And as you understand yourself, then out of that, there is some empathy, some insight into the other person. But if you do it the way 90% of human beings do it, it'll be backward and ineffective, and you'll never get to the self. Oh, how convenient. You'll never have to risk <laughs> really taking a look deep inside because you'll constantly be holding other people responsible. The sad news is the game is rigged, and I understand the fear of knowing self. You know, we all do. Anybody listening to a class like this, participating in a class like this, you've already faced your fear. You're doing it now. You're learning about yourself. The The crazy thing is it only feels like fear when you don't look and don't understand. And as soon as you turn to face the very fear that comes from not knowing yourself so as to know yourself, it turns out to be shadow. It turns out to be a nightmare and devoid of substance. It just vaporizes, uh, dissolves, ceases to exist, and uh, the shadow becomes light. There's no struggle between light and dark. Darkness is the absence of light. Light is an energy. Darkness is not. And so it is with love and fear. Love is a real thing. Fear is a nightmare. It's not real. Nothing, nothing real about it. Okay, with that, let's go to the uh, comments. And if you guys are on the phone, you can press star 2 on the telephone touchpad. If you're listening live now on the telephone, obviously, if you're listening to a podcast, that's uh, not going to help. But uh, if you're with us live this morning on the 5th of September and you're on the phone, you have that option. Star 2 will put an indication on my computer that you want to be acknowledged, you have a question or a comment, and I can unmute you one at a time. If you prefer, if you're not on the phone but rather listening live this morning on the web, you can use the little text box in front of you. And uh, be sure and enter a, uh, a name. We like to know your name. We like to know where you are. And then hit the submit button. Not enough just to type it in. Be sure you hit the, uh, the submit button. Uh, good. We have some people on the phone that want to talk. Let me check the Q&A for the text people. Let's do that first. Let's do the text Q&A, and then we'll go to the telephones. And uh, Phil Jaffe in Canoga Park is with us, saying, uh, Hey, Michael, now that the Ageless Wisdom has been successfully moved to Facebook, are you thinking about scrapping the Ning site? No, I'm not. In fact, we've barely begun um, the Ning site. I'm glad you mentioned it. This is a very cool uh, social net. It's a lot like Facebook, only it's devoted to friends who are interested in human potential. That's the difference, that our Facebook friends may share our interests to a large degree, and then again they may be friends in spite of the fact that they don't share our interest in metaphysics or personal development at all, but on the Ning site, 
everybody's into this stuff, and we've just begun. I got four new people today. We're up to, I think, about 109 or 110 people, and um, we have so many cool things to do that I often forget to even mention it, so thanks for reminding me to mention it. My website is theagelesswisdom.com, and T-H-E is part of the address, so after the W's, it's .theagelesswisdom.com, and that's my primary website. You can go there to uh, get the free newsletter. You click homepage, go inside. There's web teleconferences. The archives of this class is about 130 of these classes, all archived, going back a couple of years for you, all absolutely free. And all kinds of other cool stuff, a section on how to abolish hunger, how to abolish war, how to work for a better world in addition to a better self. You insert Ning in that address, and you'll go to the social net. So the social net for human potential people is, again, the w's.theagelesswisdom.ning.com. And... You can sign up and sign in. You can customize the appearance of your personal page and your profile. You can post JPEGs and videos. You can blog. I've been looking for some people to blog there. Um, there's a notes section, an events calendar. Um, the primary thing is the discussion thread, sort of like the wall in Facebook where you can post discussions and message each other, reply to those discussions, send internal email to each other. The whole idea is to hook up, albeit perhaps gradually at this point, with other women and men who share your interest in metaphysics and mysticism and personal development. So if you haven't done that yet, when we're done today, slide on over to theagelesswisdom.com. Ning, N-I-N-G, Nancy, India, Nancy, Gulf, dot com, theagelesswisdom.ning.com. Thanks, Phil. Carol Postel in La Habra. Hello, Carol. She says hello and good morning. Robert, uh, good afternoon, actually, for Carol. She's on the mainland. In Irvine, Robert Fiegel says aloha, Michael. Great class. Labor Day is a good time to appreciate the working men and women in the country and realize that we are the fabric of America and we should take a stand against the corporate machine trying to exploit us and devalue our self-worth. Uh, it's debatable whether they're trying to devalue our worth, but they're certainly trying to exploit us, and I agree. <laughs> I think you hear these people say, well, you're just going to have to take that minimum wage job even though you have a master's degree. You know, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but Robert goes on to say that uh, he thinks we should, uh, let's see. Well, it goes on here. I, I don't want to get into all of this. It's talking about who to attack and the corporate fat cats and the teachers and the unions and and all of that, and uh, I understand those feelings, I really do. And uh, thank you, Robert. It's always good to hear from you. Robert Wacker in L.A., Aloha, Michael. 
The second book was uh, Exploring the Crack in the Cosmic Egg. Yeah, that was it. And uh, actually uh, goes beyond the first book. I didn't care for it as much as the first one, but the first one really uh, blew my mind. Robert goes on, he says that uh, Pierce, of course, also wrote The Magical Child, and The Magical Child matures. The uh, four books built upon each other, and uh, thus must all be read to get the message that Pierce was attempting to convey. Uh, okay. Um, he also wrote a book called Bond of Power that I liked quite a bit. was about, I'm talking about Joseph Chilton Pierce, not Robert. The uh, Robert may have books too, I'm not sure. Um, Bond of Power was about Joseph Chilton Pierce's relationship with uh, uh, the Swami Muktananda, who had, a, still does, I think, a big center in Santa Monica, though he passed some years ago. There's a lineage there that carries on. And um, he was known for this Muktananda for conveying a stunning experience of of enlightenment called Shaktipat. And uh, Pierce wrote about that in Bond of Power. That's another good one. I, I, again, I started to mention that I had interviewed him on the radio in the late 70s, and one of the phrases that he gave me at the time, figures of speech that I love and have used ever since, is thoughts that arrive full-blown. I got off track 20 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago when I was talking about this. That's where I wanted to go, that the intuitive nature, and to some extent even instinct, it's just intuitive. Intuition seems to often be so much more complete, such a big, comprehensive understanding, like a musician that'll jump out of bed at three in the morning and start playing a song that they'd been dreaming about and all the chords are there and all the the lyrics are there and the the words rhyme and there's alliteration the beautiful allegory and where the hell did that all come from just bursting into somebody's awareness while they slept or while they're walking the dog down the street or something that that aha experience, that eureka illumination, Joseph Chilton Pierce called thoughts that arrive full-blown. Isn't it cool? As if thought up someplace else. <laughs> Indeed, in the subconscious. In Arcadia, Judy Kraft is with us. Hello, Judy. She says, aloha, Michael. Uh, intuition is a play on words. I'm into it. Great class. Talk to you soon. Have a magical week. Lots of love to you and Doreen. Patricia Vega uh, says hello from Los Angeles. Michael wanted to say that we all, we're all really one, and to know yourself helps you to know what others feel about uh, themselves, to have compassion, in other words. A very nice sentiment. I'd agree with you, Patricia. Thanks very much for that. Let's take a phone call or two, and then we'll do our guided imagery exercise for the day today. Let's go to our friend in uh, Albuquerque, and that's uh, Diane. And hello, Diane. You're in the Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hi. Hi, Michael. 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 Hi
Hello, Michael. Say hello to Doreen for me. Thank you. I promise I will. Okay. You know, um, I love talking about the intuition possibilities. I think I think all of us are intuitive at some level, and that maybe it's just time on this earth that makes you a little more intuitive as time goes by. I think a lot of people, um, because sometimes your intuition, although it comes softly and comfortably, it gives you a unique direction or awareness, and it sometimes opposes what you believe to be true in your present life. And so I think sometimes people push it away. Um, I follow it and have found that that I don't always get it with all the details. I just get an awareness or a direction that I know to be true and follow it. And then as time goes on, all the details and all the questions I have, you know, unfold in the they path. They get flushed out, yeah. Yeah, Don't you exactly. find sometimes, Diane, that intuition arrives with a sense of confirmation, with an awareness that this is not only a good idea, this is a great idea. This. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, And that's what I mean by you know that this is what I'm going to follow. And I have these 300 questions, but I'm going to follow this and it will unfold. Exactly. And sometimes it's intuition to sit in a meeting and someone tells you fabulous news and as you look at them, you know immediately they're not telling the truth. I mean, you're just totally aware and you go, okay, I know that. And it unfolds and they weren't. You know, or sometimes... Yeah, or sometimes it's a direction that changes your life completely and opposes everything that you know to be wise and sound, but you follow it and then you see why. Yeah, that's, um, again, that, that, that could be called instinct or intuition, but I think the more we trust these subtler feelings, even if they don't initially bear the weight of some... Logic. Yeah, because you know, <laughs> logic is so mathematical and scientific. Yes, it is. And you get these big therefores in your head, and that's just, you know, like two and two is four, and that's just the end of it right there. And then there's this other thing that is, you know... Uh, often more vague and, and doesn't feel nearly as concrete and it's misty and ethereal, ephemeral, that's the word I want. And yet there's something to it and I don't know, if you play with it, if you if you just sit with it, if you just watch it, if you relax and open yourself to it, it often comes upon you in a way that can... <laughs> burst open the top of your head with with an awareness of information that you didn't know. It's almost like uh, logic will help us string together bits of knowledge, but intuition tends to fill in the gaps in between. Exactly, and I think sometimes, too, um, when you follow some of the intuition you get that maybe is a major change, um, and really opposes everything that you you know to be true, 
you can cheat a little and have a plan B. But you still follow. Yeah. No, for sure. We talked about that Thursday. Yeah. Uh, I thought that Thursday video conference last week went really well, didn't you? Yes, it was wonderful. We had about 10 people, I think, for most of the for most of the time, and um, everybody participated, everybody, um, I really enjoyed it, I'm, I'm really enjoying this Thursday night thing, and interested in seeing how big it can get before it's unwieldy. Yes, exactly, and they had a million different things to say about intuition and their experiences. That's why really I decided, yeah, yeah. Uh, those that were not with us but are with us now, you don't know that that's where the idea for today's show came from, was out of Thursday night's um, uh, video conference. We talked a little about this and then some other things, too. So, Well, thanks yeah. for being with us today. You're enjoying well, the holiday weekend. thank you. Weekend? Love the class. It's a holiday weekend for you. Are you enjoying yourself? Yes, I am. You going to barbecue on Monday or anything? Absolutely. Fire Might even party. barbecue today, too. <laughs> Good. Well, enjoy yourself. Thanks for calling. Okay. Happy holiday. Bye-bye. Aloha. Bye-bye. And uh, we have time for another one. Let's go to, um, let's see, let me make sure that Diane is muted, and then we'll go to Robert in West Los Angeles. You're in the Mystery School with Michael. Hi, Robert. Aloha, Michael. How you doing? Aloha, better and better, thank you. Yeah, I'm utilizing a two-pronged input approach today. Ah, the, tell me the, about it. The phone and the text box. <laughs> oh, you're multitasking. Multi-texting and multi-inputting. Yeah, I appreciate that. Hey, uh, real quick, two comments. One, since you brought up judgment, uh, you're talking about judging other people and judgment. Yeah. One thing that can't be stated too many times is that uh, since 99.9% of being uh, is not aware that it is being, is not aware that it exists at all, uh, when we make a judgment, uh, the first, for this, for the vast majority, literally the vast majority, the ocean of consciousness that each one of us is, and has access to is not aware that it is. There is no other for it. So when we make a judgment of another, the only being that hears or feels that judgment is guess what? Yeah, right. And uh, it tends to take such judgments in a very literal fashion, uh, literally as uh, even L. Ron Hubbard said, as a command for experience. So if a person is looking to find the ways that they're booby-trapping or sabotaging their lives, you need to look no further than the uh, judgments or condemnations you're passing on people for really trivial stuff. I mean, it's one thing to say that a mass murder is evil, but for, you know, giving somebody the, the what for in your mind for really rather trivial nonsense is bad news. Uh, the other thing is about intuition itself, which is um, something I'm learning that we we need not mystify it so much. Um, as we come to know uh, the totality of our processing system and the amount of data 
that we're not aware of consciously that does register within all the levels of mind and which we get feedback from, intuition being one of them, uh, you know, as, as we as we become more aware of this, and there's many ways to do that, but as we become more aware of it, we learn that this is just part of the feedback we get from our subliminal processing systems that are aware of so much more information and are echoing back, you know, findings, determinations, knowings. Uh, we need only listen. We need to, you know, people have a hard time hearing in the world and we have an even harder time hearing the subtle messaging um, and of course this goes up this includes the full blow the the ideas the thoughts arriving full blown in the mind right yeah like uh, Mo, uh, Mozart's complete musical works arriving every single no you know gigantic blobs of information that might take years to write about or extrapolate on arrive and we know it in its totality in the mind without thinking about it and yet once we start thinking about it to communicate it to others it might take volumes you know it occurred to me the other day this follows on to what you're saying that one of the Perhaps, I'll say it this way, perhaps one of the reasons that we are as humans resistant to meditation, contemplation, or any kind of inner reflection is the fear that if we discover anything that's out of kilter, um, misaligned, or not working right, uh, if we discover new um, heretofore missing pieces, that we're going to have to do something about it. And, of course, often there is there are changes, but they, I find that to realize it is usually sufficient. And it's not like, oh, goodness, now I have all this extra work to do in my life that I could have avoided if only I hadn't wasted that time meditating on my emptiness, my fear, my dissatisfaction, whatever, and now look what I've done. I've got to do all of this changing in my life, all of this improvement. And the truth is that in a twinkling of an eye, realization just makes everything okay. You understand, okay, I should have done that differently. I could have done it differently. Maybe next time I will do it differently. But the point is I realize it. I see it. I can experience that, and uh, <laughs> it always, you know, you never come out of meditation with a guilty conscience, I guess. is what it is. You're always absolved by the act of realizing it as it is. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Does that make sense? <laughs> it, no, no, it doesn't make sense. It's actually uh, true. There is an ancient understanding, and all true teachers understand uh, the the admonition that once once you because it's twofold it, it's both points are true when you come across something in a meditation session you become conscious of something 
there is the realization it's okay. You realize, okay, what has happened before, you know, you don't need to pass judgment on yourself for that. You don't need to criticize or critique it. It's gone. But from this moment forward now, I'm responsible for this because I know now. I don't get any breaks for, you know, for cheating. You know, I can't act like I don't know. And when you do try and pretend you don't know, you will get feedback from the universe. That is a reality I've witnessed. Well, the idea that we're all one, uh, that you started with, again, this ocean of consciousness, this one unbounded, unfettered, uh, you know, universe, if you will. Um, Why would karma, why else would karma work? Why, Why else would what the self describes describe the self? We're in a hall of mirrors, and any sense, as you've said, and, and, and I've heard you say many times, any sense of another, the other, is an illusion. And ultimately, uh, in the world of form, there are all kinds of circumstances and situations where this seems to be other than that. The Buddhists talk about, in order for there to be a that, there has to be a this. There, <laughs> there's got to be a yin to a yin to be a yang, and yet, uh, from an elevated perspective, from that ocean of consciousness, there is no other. So, any uh, judgment or recrimination that we put out into the world is our karma. It's our world. It's it's our consciousness or our thought patterns. There's nobody else here. Yeah, so, that's I ex- like that. That's exactly why why yeah. karma works. It's not about retro. It's, it's a concept that's been tainted over here because of the uh, conditioning of a Western religion. But there's it's not about condemnation or retribution. It's or about punishment. bringing. Yeah, right. it's, it's not about any of that stuff. It's about bringing to a person's awareness. The interconnectivity and the interdependency of all life. We we walk around thinking that we're going to be able to, you know, wish for this and ask for that and make this possible. And with each one of those desires, we're asking everything to compensate a little bit, creating changes here, changes there, which are going to have an effect. And... That's that's how we learn. That's how we learn that you know what you're not here. It, yes, the the one being, the the great mind, however you want to put it, the infinite intelligence might not be able to even conceive of itself as a one and not recognize any other. But in this world, this this place of cause and effect, uh, yes, we. We have to be mindful of what we're doing because we're creating effects. Two of the primary schools, of course, I had a teacher that used to, uh, well, what was it I was going to say? Let me go back to the two schools idea. The the idea that um, there is a school of um, occult uh, magic or um Hermetic alchemy that was really reborn in Western civilization as it was discovered by Rosicrucians 
1,500 years after its heyday in Egypt and and more. And uh, that's the idea of, again, lead to gold, of, of working through meditation to raise your consciousness, but even to manifest form. This is where the idea of the secret comes from. Provided this for the greater good of all and not the separated self that, um, you know, there are those that, that teach the occult side of this. And the forms that we would be building would not be a new car, new house, so much as peace on earth and everybody has enough to eat and is gainfully employed and doing something they love to do. That would be a higher form of magic, if you will. And often that's referred to as a cult. Of course, that's been painted as all evil and negative by the church. A cult really means hidden, the word simply. Yeah. It's, just, it's just another word for esoteric, really. Yeah, yeah, which is for the few, meaning the exoteric would be for the many, uh, sort of like uh, high school, and esoteric, yeah, more like grad school. For that inner circle. Yeah. So if um, if um, we have the occult, then we also have the uh, contemplative side, more of the mystical side, where our concern is less in manifesting form or refining form that's already here, more focused on expanding the awareness so that each time you open your eyes and find yourself once again in form, you bring a little more of the ocean with you. <laughs> yeah, and that affects your daily life and affairs. And I, I guess I, I use my meditation for both, to stand receptive to the, as the mystic would to the higher consciousness and, and just to expand my, my point of view so I can see slightly broader horizons every day, uh, deeper, farther, stronger, better, more comprehensive, moving in that direction of completion. But also um, the idea, provided it's for the greater good of the one life and never for the separated self, why not use these powers to manifest form if those forms are harmony and peace and kindness and compassion and, and healing? Healing is a good example. Uh, teaching classes like this, spreading the light, you know. Uh, I think there's something to be said for both of those branches. Yeah, I think that the uh, actually in, in meditation, I think both of these, both of those things come out of your practice. Uh, all kinds of uh, what, what we call seedlings, if you will, uh, you know, come out of practice. It, 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 you're you're expanding your awareness. You're becoming more aware of the information that can be provided to us by this thing called the mind brain and the body. And but also things are coming through you um to be made manifest even if it's something as simple as you manifesting that very quality is going to grow in you. Yeah, there is no separation, yeah. Again, so anything you do for another, you benefit from it. it. It always keeps coming back around. If it doesn't feel whole, there's pieces missing. It's because you always end up with wholeness. It always, it's like the 
the final chord of the symphony that you know resolves everything that came before that's a finale that that <laughs> that chord really says fine and that's a feeling that I that that you know comes from uh love and and uh this connection knowing you're the ocean not the drop well listen how about a parting shot robert uh, exploring the crack in the cosmic egg, chapter sixteen, uh, stands alone as perhaps the greatest single chapter uh, in any spiritual document ever written. Uh, wow! If a person gets it, they can uh, contemplate it for the rest of their lives. A single paragraph. Well, it's no, it's a, it's a chapter, chapter sixteen, called "Embracing Despair." Oh, okay, the whole chapter. Okay. Yeah, Thank uh, you, Robert. Hey, take care. Aloha. Embracing despair, it sounds like it reminds me of uh, running from safety. Uh, Richard Bach wrote a book, um, Running from Safety. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, do a little exercise. Close your eyes, relax, get nice and comfortable. And we'll do a meditation on uh, today's class about the gut feelings, instinct, and intuition. So sit straight, not rigid, but balanced. You can lean back. Do a couple of shoulder shrugs and some head rolls. Take a minute to orient yourself. Think of your spine in perfect alignment. Whatever you may know of discs and vertebrae and the way the spine lines up, imagine it being aligned as a path of least resistance, you see. You know how a garden hose could get a kink in it and not nearly as much water comes out, and then you unkink the garden hose, whoosh, here comes the juice. Think of your spine as being perfectly aligned up through the head and down into the earth. Feel the chair supporting you, the pillow, the cushion, the floor beneath your feet. And then beyond that, just get a sense of being connected to earth and sky as if grounded at the base of the spine into the earth. That's where all energy wants to go. That's where... That's how energy discharges itself, like lightning seeking the earth ground, or every electrical outlet in your house has a a ground, lest the two hot wires short circuit. There's a quick path to the earth where the energy always wants to end up anyway. When radio and TV stations broadcast their signal, 
via an antenna out into the sky, that's only half of the job. There's as much wire buried in the ground below that antenna to create a ground wave, and the sky wave and the ground wave work together. They're polarities of one thing. Just as energy and mass are two forms of the same thing and are convertible, spirit and matter, two forms of the same thing that are convertible. And yet in this universe of energy and mass, where energy equals the mass, where spirit equals the matter, where everything is energy and spirit, whether reflected as matter or still in the form of energy. Sometimes acting like both in a quantum sense, visible light itself acting at times like matter as well as energy. Just one thing at work, one energy with its polarities. And so, stand receptive as well to a downward impress. The alchemists refer to condensation and precipitation as if it were a gentle downward sprinkling of consciousness of awareness, of I amness, that comes at the top of your head into this vessel. That is, the physical body is an energy matrix, more important than the actual material made out of food you ate that's wrapped around it. There is an energy matrix in the same shape as your body a matrix or an energy form, an etheric body that the food body wraps itself around. Be that energy body as you breathe and relax. Receptive to this energy filling you. Place your awareness in the ajna before the forehead, the third eye, as you visualize for yourself and create as a frame of reference for yourself a beautiful place of perfect peace where you can sit upon the earth itself and remain open to the full sky as a point of consciousness between spirit and matter, the consciousness between energy and mass, the unified field between Einstein's theories of relativity and quantum mechanics, that which resolves all paradox and all mystery, is love, consciousness, truth.
embody it, represent it, allow yourself to be filled with it, and emanate gently in all directions, radiate. Imagine as you become filled and full and fulfilled, all of the chakras in your body open even further, stand more receptive as energy centers. The root at the tail, the base of the spine, in charge of survival. The most basic survival instincts. The second chakra, deep in the abdomen, associated with the gonads, with sexuality, with power and control, with money and survival in the physical world, the second chakra, imagine it opens. Think of a little tornado of light, a little whirlwind of energy that dilates, or the lotus blossom blooming. As you move your awareness now to the third chakra, the solar plexus in the middle of the body, the center of gravity behind the navel, and understand this center or plexus to be associated with emotions. And that gut feelings could be instinctual, first and second chakra, fear-based, survival-oriented, or higher in the belly, the solar plexus, love-based, aspiring even toward the fourth chakra, the heart. This is the intuition. This is the coming of light. If an instinct is a gut feeling that tells you what not to do and what you don't want, intuition is the higher, more refined frequency in the gut, so-called, that by being love-based reveals what we do want the heart to follow, to find your soul. To find your soul, you must follow your heart. To follow your heart, you must feel peace and love and harmony. To feel peace and love and harmony, you're going to have to heal the hurt. So I'd like to suggest that you say to yourself that it is your intention to begin to treat yourself with greater love and gentleness and respect yourself to treat yourself with more tenderness and forgiveness and kindness. Be good to yourself. Treat yourself. Consider this. Treat yourself as you would somebody who you really, really loved. 
For when you really love somebody, you want them to be happy. And go out of your way often to help them to be happy. We would say make them happy, but it's more supporting them in their happiness. (laughs) Creating an environment where people don't even need reasons to be happy and are happy for no reason. Happiness doesn't need reasons. Love doesn't need reasons. What if you treated yourself that way? What if you took the the same understanding and patience that you exhibit with somebody you really, really love and have applied that to yourself? You know the phrase about being your own worst critic. It's really true, isn't it? At least when we're critical, who are we criticizing? Secretly, the self. And it's not that we know we need to be criticized or deserve to be criticized. It's the not knowing that gives birth to and fosters the criticism. It's what we don't know about ourselves but fear to be true that leads to the self-loathing and the depression. Depression is just angry at yourself. Depression, in most cases, is just frustrated with who you are. It's the discomfort that's necessary to get us to move forward. To turn our attention to more existential issues. What is life? What am I for? When am I going to treat myself better that I might treat others better knowing that there is no other? The golden rule is true. Because you are your neighbor, and your neighbor is you. Feel yourself expanding to the ocean, being the ocean, knowing, as the ancient mystics have said, we can remove a drop from the ocean, but we'll never take the ocean out of the drop. A beautiful concept. We may be separated from our source, but our source is never separated from us. And the magic, the middle bit, that allows the one to manifest as the many without being 
diminished or even affected in any way. Is the magnetism and the coherence of love as consciousness. That's the mystery in the middle. That's the secret in the center. Love. As consciousness. As peace. And understanding. Realization. Breathe. Feel yourself in your body. Loved, loving, and lovable. Willing to do a better job. Committing now to yourself to be better at treating yourself the way you would treat someone that you really, really love. With gentleness and kindness and and understanding. If you would listen to somebody and really reach out to somebody else that you cared about, do that with you, for you, by you, of you, to you, from the center of you, out. Let it be. And McCartney wrote... Whispered words of wisdom, let it be, that you might see. The beautiful thing is you can bring this with you back to the waking state with no effort at all. There's nothing to hold on to or carry. These are not forms energies they're everywhere equally present and are waiting for you now at all levels, all planes and all spheres it is simply your awareness your now expanded awareness of completion that you bring with you into the world of separated forms as the consciousness between the one and the many, between unity and diversity, the consciousness between energy and mass, spirit and matter. Take a nice slow breath, fill your lungs, hold as you peak, and then exhale slowly, relaxing as you open your eyes now, wide awake, alert, rested, refreshed, back in the room, Feeling really good, better than before, on a Labor Day weekend, September 5, today, 2010. Thanks a lot for being here, you guys. Thanks for calling, those of you who called. Thank you for uh, your comments and your questions, those of you who posted. Thanks for being here just for a little while, as some of you had to come and go. And thanks for telling your friends. Be sure you're getting the newsletter. Go to theagelesswisdom.com and click the newsletter button. Just leave me a first name and an email. That's really all I need. If you want to give me your city or your mailing address, that's great. Give me your last name. As much as you want to leave, the 
it's rather complete form, but all I really need is your first name and your best email address. You'll start getting the free newsletter every Friday. That'll have the links to this live class, and it'll tell you about the Thursday night video conference and um, about the Ning network that we talked about, about our premium audio program at FocusedPassion.com. That has a new podcast, by the way. We've taken 10 of our favorite premium audio programs. Normally, these are a dollar each and put them into a 10-session podcast that cycles around every 10 weeks. And we call it Empower Yourself in Paradise. So you can pick that up as a podcast, too. Get a taste of it, and if you like it, subscribe for three ninety-six a month, $3.96 pennies per month at focusedpassion.com. So pick that up at the iTunes store. And uh, I want to mention again, I want you to start thinking, it's not too soon, about the Maui retreat in February. We're going to limit this to 20 people. This is a nature encounter, a five-day intensive on 70 acres of private land in the middle of a rainforest on a bluff overlooking the Pacific Ocean in Maui, Hawaii. It's going to be very affordable. Everything is going to be included, catered meals. There's unlimited hot showers and flush toilets, but you're going to be outside. If it's, uh, you know, cold, doesn't get very cold here. Or if it gets windy or rainy, we have uh, inside facilities. We have covered decks. We have yurts. But uh, we're going to spend a lot of time outside. So this is as you can imagine, going to be called Finding Yourself in Paradise. It's an encounter with the true you. We used to call it the new you. That works. Uh, It's the eternal and infinite you. It's the only you. And uh, that's the one life from a particular solar point of view, elevated perspective. And you'll find that here in Paradise with delicious fruits and papayas and guavas and mangoes and bananas and all of it catered, fresh daily, and uh, you know, beautiful tropical flowers. And we're going to post some flowers. I'm going to put a page up on Flickr in the coming weeks and show you this uh, 70 private acres. It's so cool. Uh, Mama Alave is the location, which means, interestingly, keeper of the ageless wisdom. Anyway, that's coming up in February of 2011. So save the date. We'll get actual prices and and dates and details. Uh, It'll probably start on February 13. Day two is Valentine's Day, so you might want to consider it a couple's workshop, though. We think there'll be a lot of single people there, too, men and women, of all ages and sizes and types. Finding Yourself in Paradise, the retreat in Maui in February of 2011. And finally, uh, if you want to call me, you can leave a message anytime, 24-7 at 818-569-3017. It's an L.A. number, 818-569-3017. That's a service, so you can use it anytime, 24-7. If you want to know about private counseling, I do telephone and Skype counseling, which works real well. A lot of people like the Skype counseling for the 
of the eye contact. It's really cool. It's hardly any different than you having to drive to my office when I was in Los Angeles and do it on the computer with video telephone Skype. So I'm still doing one-on-one and couples counseling that way. So we'll see you down the road. Again, theagelesswisdom.com and focusedpassion.com. Check them out. And uh, we'll see you down the calendar page. Aloha from Maui. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner.